Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am really honored today to have our guest on. We're going to be talking about a new book called The Illuminated Hafez. Jonathan Granoff is the president of the Global Security Institute. He's a representative to the United Nations for the Permanent Secretariat of the World Summit of Nobel Peace Laureates and Ambassador for Peace, Security, and Nuclear Disarmament of the Parliament of World Religions. He serves on numerous advisory and governing boards, including the International Law Section of the American Bar Association, Bawa Mahadeen Fellowship, the Universal Sufi Council, World Wisdom Council, Tikkum International Association of Sufism, Middle Powers Initiative, the Jane Goodall Institute, and the Parliamentarians for Nuclear Non- Proliferation and Disarmament, a fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Scientists. Jonathan was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2014. He's one of the editors of the new Illuminated Hafez, and it's so good to have you, Jonathan, on the show. I'm, I'm really privileged and honored and excited about our conversation today. Well, thank you for bringing me into your family. I learned that your audience are people that actually love the gift of creation and love the gift of creation living within themselves and see the harmony between the two. You're actually enhancing that which we believe is outside of ourselves. Mm. And by, by serving the sustainability and health of the living systems of the planet, you're actually serving the most precious thing within yourself mm. because they're not, it's an illusion to think they're separate and your audience is largely people, I, I believe, over the years been listening to you, who've learned more and more about that interconnectedness, which I think is also an interconnectedness. Absolutely. It's, you know, one of the themes that comes up in, in so many of our conversations is the theme of the myth of separation and how much we're in this time, this age, where the mechanistic paradigm is starting to unravel the Newtonian Cartesian belief that we're objects in a world of objects. And reading the Illuminated Hafez project, which I just love this, love poems for the journey to light. Talk a little bit about how this all came together. Talk about the project a little bit, how it uh, evolved. Well, let me talk about it from the first person, my thread in it, because my thread in it demonstrates a hidden hand, something wanting to get a message out to the world. So it goes like this. I was uh, living with and studying with a great uh, in illuminated being named Bawa Mahayadin, Guru Bawa, Sheikh Bawa Mahayadin. When he was in the West, he was a Sufi Sheikh. I was with him in Sri Lanka where he was a Swami. But he was a guy they found in the jungles of Sri Lanka. 
very, very, very old. And he encouraged me to go to law school. So after basically four years of spending most of my time uh, in meditation and just simply sitting, my world was just a few feet from from my feet. And he said, now you've learned a little bit about the difference between what's true and real and what's not. You should get some skills to be of value to the world. And he encouraged me to go to law school. So the first week in law school, I was there and the professor, Milner Ball was his name, asked the property law class, what is real property? <laughs> and I raised my hand and I said, well, I'm not quite sure what it is. I think I'll, we'll, we'll discover later on. But I definitely know that what most people believe is real property is not real property because you have to give it up so very soon. All of the objects that are perceived with our senses that we try to acquire, we have to let go of them. And that can't hardly be real. What I think is real is what we make of those objects that we live with in our short span in this world. And that we keep for a long, long time. In a law class. And and I'd love to have seen his face. (laughs) Yes. Well, this is the thing. Um, that proper, you know, first year property law is a big lecture hall because there's actually stuff. It's not where you learn how to think like a lawyer or to think critically and analyze, deconstruct arguments, all the things that lawyers do. It's where you have to learn certain principles. Mm-hmm. So it's a big lecture. It's very didactic. It's not the Socratic method that's normally used. So the professor called me up after class and I thought he, as I was walking to see him, I thought he was probably going to suggest that I take up another profession. Well, Jonathan, he said, with a really strong Southern drawl, he had been a professor at University of Georgia. You know, Jonathan, I really resonated with what you said. See, I was number one in my class at Harvard Divinity School before law school. And I agree with you. I'm really glad you said that. And I have a friend named Coleman Barks, who's working on an obscure 13th century Sufi poet named Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi. And I think you're supposed to work with him and help him out. So for about a year, this was in the 1970s. We didn't have, uh, we didn't have uh, email at that time. And Coleman was faxing me texts and we were working on it. And we developed a relationship through the fax machine. And I said, stop window shopping. If you want to do this work with Rumi, you have to meet someone and be with someone and study with someone who's at the station of the whole ocean and not just a cup. Mm. So he came to Philadelphia where Bawa was and he came and I brought him into Bawa's room. Bawa was so just envisioned this very, very incredibly peaceful presence. A man well over a hundred sitting vibrantly on his bed, sitting up waiting as if he were waiting for Coleman and myself. And I hadn't told him anything about who Coleman was and what he was doing. We walked in the room and Bawa went like this with his arms. And he said, poetry, bowetry. Now the bow tree is the tree that the Buddha sat under. You know, it's an apocryphal story that he sat under to gain his enlightenment. And the bow tree doesn't have roots that go deep. The roots go in and out and stretch far and wide. And he said to Coleman, my best recollection was something along these lines, you must go into the unseen, the depth of the unseen, and bring it out into the world. 
You must go into the wisdom and make it manifest. This roomy work must be done. And that's how Coleman got, I believe, the blessing to do this amazing work with Rumi. Now, there was another, there were two other students of this great master, Michael and Sally Green, who are brilliant artists. I mean, just absolutely inspired artists. And the illustrators Coleman, of this book. Exactly. And book, Coleman, yeah. Coleman and Michael and Sally became real family. And they did a book called The Illuminated Rumi, which was been so successful and instrumental in bringing this great enlightened being's message from centuries ago. And you read the poems and they're just so, they're so contemporary because truth is always illuminating. No matter when it's given, it doesn't change. Light doesn't change. The objects that light illuminates might change, but truth is truth. And uh, so that was very successful. And then they decided to do another book with Coleman and Robert Bly and a couple, and some other wonderful people on another amazing Sufi Persian poet, Hafiz. Mm-hmm. Well, it's Hafez in the Persian, Hafiz, I think, if it's Arabic. He was born probably around 1315, 1313, and died around 1390. And he speaks to today. So they did this book, and I had the privilege of of working with them on it and doing an essay in it. But the only qualification that I have for it is I met someone, best way to describe it, we can live with the illusion that we are are fully identified with being the wave of our life. Mm -hmm. And every wave is unique and different, and it has an arc of time. It peaks, and then it returns to the ocean. But there are some human beings men and women from time immemorial, who before the arc of time pulls the wave back to the ocean, fully bow down and surrender to the ocean. And they realize that, yes, their wave is unique and has a particular message and resonance, but that it would be an illusion to think that the wave is separate from the ocean. And they uniformly in all cultures at all times remind us of two things one is we are one with the ocean that that reality is one that one means one that the wave and the ocean is one that you and i are part of one thing and two that the way of discovering that is by finding the intrinsic virtue and love and compassion within the inner heart that causes our outer heart to beat and that we have to go deep within ourselves and find that Socrates might've called that virtue. Jesus called that love. Muhammad called that compassion. And that finding that love, compassion or virtue within oneself is the most meaningful course of our lives. They all come back with similar ethical principles. Having met someone who did that presents a challenge to Coleman to Michael and Sally who did the illustrations and to myself, which is we can't pawn it off and say, well, you know, Jesus did this several thousand years ago. Muhammad did this or Buddha or somebody else did it. We saw someone who did it and who, and who, and who said to all of us, this is what it is to be human, mm. to realize that the wave realizes itself when in humility and pure love, bows down before you die 
to die to the attachment to the illusions of being separate and open the heart to the grace and joy and responsibility of knowing that we are one. It's so interesting to be talking to someone who's a lawyer and <laughs> and expressing these feelings. And I love that so much your spirituality or, you know, the Persian mystics have this God realization path, this eternal love. And that's so imbued in your work for denuclearization, for finding peace on the planet, for all the work you've been doing with the Nobel Peace Laureates. Maybe we can even get a poem out of this beautiful, illuminated Hafez book, illustrate how this work isn't something other than life. You know, it is, it is life. It is sticking your toe or immersing yourself in the ocean. It informs our way of being in the world in a way that really is the kind of world that we want, one that's of peace and harmony and love and connection and understanding and compassion. Do you have a poem that you might like to uh, share with us from, from the book? Sure. I mean, just opened it up, you know, sort of like the I Ching. You just, I just pulled one open here. Uh-huh. Hafez says, uh, and I'll read short, a short one. Don't allow your inward being to be hurt by what you have or have not. Be glad because every perfect thing is on its way to non-existence. All these things shall pass. So I, I think it's a wonderful, you know, every one of his poems is like a gem that you can keep just sort of turning different, different get different reflections. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one really says that to to the activists that are listening, to the people that care, Keep your heart pure. Don't allow success or failure to impact it. Don't be attached to the outcome of our actions. Don't allow your inward being to be hurt by what you have or have not, the success or failure of your engagement. There's a wonderful guidebook of instructions called the Bhagavad Gita Mm -hmm. that addresses this. In the book, there's a, a prince who is on the who is facing an existential dilemma of his time. He's about to go into a battle. He doesn't want to go in the battle because he says to his teacher, Krishna, if I go in the battle, I'm going to kill people that I don't want to kill. People in my family, poets, wise people, relatives. If I don't go in, they'll, the people in the other army, they'll kill my family. It'll be a great dishonor. It, what do I do? Well, I won't tell you all the answers that Krishna gives him. I recommend the book very, very strongly. One of them is he talks about ways of the wave realizing it is the ocean called yoga, meaning union, union with the divine, union with life. One of the paths he calls Dharma yoga or the yoga, the union with the divine through service. And the emphasis he gives in it is do your service without attachment to success or failure. Don't have the metrics of the world for your success or failure. Imagine if Jesus had those metrics. By the time the the cock crows in the morning, you're all going to abandon me, right? What metric is that? Or the metric of Socrates, the 500 jurors 
condemn him to death for what? Questioning the mythology of Greek society, Quest, asking questions. He's wrongfully convicted of disruption. But because he knows the rule of law is important for others, he says, give me the hemlock. I have no fear. I know what my immortality is. In other words, from the metric of the world, he's a total failure. He loses. He loses a capital offense case. He loses. But from the metric of the, of the truth, he forms the basis for the rule of law that you and I are protected by that allows us to have this free-flowing conversation. So here, Hafiz says, don't let that part of you that's transcendent and connected with the divine ever be disturbed by outside circumstances. That is some heavy medicine. Mm. No excuses, my brothers and sisters, right? No excuses. Keep your prayerfulness. Keep your place. Keep keep the temple of peace within your heart free. Yeah. And then why? Remember. Remember everything. Everything is paths passing into non-existence, including you and I. You just sounded so, you just sounded just like Coleman. Everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. Channeling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So these guys, these guys, you know, they come from another place and, but the message is just so, you know, how succinct. I'll read it again, you know, so don't allow your inward being to be hurt by what you have or have not. Be glad because every perfect thing is on its way to non-existence. And then there's another one where he talks about, Hafez talks about, well, remember, he's, he's in a Muslim society run by clerics. He didn't get along real well with clerics because he was just a little bit freer than their kind of boundaries. And a lot of his poetry uses the metaphor of wine. Freud said sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Well, when Hafez talks about wine, it, it's, it's always a metaphor. Yeah. Well, there's so many. I think that's something about Persian mystics and poetry that eludes people sometimes because it's like, wine tavern the cup the breeze the cypress the garden all of these are metaphors for different aspects of the beloved the tavern all of those words in these poems and i think people read it like a contemporary 60s love poem uh, <laughs> that means you you should have sex or something you know yeah. well um as a union uh, you know so you've opened up a, a in those cultures that are focused on wisdom traditions as being important, everything that comes into being and passes from being is a metaphor for that which is eternal. Mm-hmm. So you're starting out in a culture in which the intelligentsia, people who would be exposed to the poetry, know that even the sun, the moon, and creation itself is a metaphor of the infinite. Right. And and so they start out with a sense of reading the so every like, you know, a cypress tree means a place of dignity and presence. It doesn't mean a cypress tree. I came to the beloved and sang. I sang to her and she let her hair down. I sang the remembrance. Zikr means the remembrance of God. And and she let me into her chamber and let her hair down. He wasn't having uh, an affair with a girl. This was a metaphor of God 
opening opening the door for him to have the experience in the islamic tradition in which he was his name means a person who has memorized and recites the entire quran so he has he says most people see your eyes and call for help he's talking to god but hafiz himself knows that the wine you offer is the wine in the quran of the question Am I not your Lord that you poured as we all said yes? So let me unpack that a little. In Quran, there's a description of before the creation of space and time. God creates the illuminated souls of which we are, who are us, illuminated souls for identity, before space and time, and has a communion with them, asking them, am I not your Lord? God says, to what he's created. The light says to the lights, the source of light says to the lights that are emanating from it, this are the souls, remember me, am I not your Lord? And all of the souls resonate in the affirmative because that's the nature of the soul to say yes to life. That's why we come into being. The meaning of it is we affirmed communion with the divine. We had a love affair with the divine. And our senses don't remember this love affair at all. Our senses are good for picking apples and getting from our bodies from place to place and taking care of this journey in life. Very important. That's why science is so important. Hmm. And why we're in a time of tremendous danger in which, in, which, uh, in which we're not using the proper tools for the proper tasks. But the task of the soul remembering its communion with the divine is a love affair. Because God is love. And so before he makes creation, the souls are emanating. And everything that comes afterwards can be understood as a tool for remembering that conversation. Hmm. And the poet, like Hafiz, views his job as to remind us of that communion with the power that brought us here. At which time we said yes to that, and he's call, and he's 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 reminding us that this is a ecstatic and joyous experience, and this book, uh, the Illuminated Hafiz, is just filled with beautiful illustrations and poems for that purpose, for the singular purpose of reminding us to get in touch with that part of ourselves that's connected to the light of God and encouraging us without fear of, of uh, loss, gain, success, failure to say yes to it in the moment. Hmm. You know, Jonathan Granoff, we were talking a little earlier about, um, well, first of all, there appears to be in the world a great burgeoning of people wanting enlightenment to awaken to reach beyond the borders of consciousness and one of the things you said in one of your essays was the distinction between conscience and consciousness and i would love for you to talk about that because it feels like it fits right in here about you know our evolution as a human species mm. well i don't think there are any borders to consciousness 
I think you meant. Oh, did I say border? No, yeah. Yes, they yeah. Did, that there are people trying to reach beyond the borders of consciousness. Yeah, there are no borders. That's a good point. There are no borders. <laughs> well said. Yes. Um, uh, there's borders to the mind, uh, and there's borders. There's borders to the mind because the mind is always in duality, and there's borders to aspects of consciousness. There's borders to sense consciousness. There's borders to tools of consciousness, such as intelligence and reason. But pure consciousness is pure light and doesn't have any borders. I'm, I'm thinking of the borders of our identity to reach towards. Absolutely. That's, absolutely. that's what I'm referring to there. Absolutely. But, but, but conscience and yeah. consciousness, that's a whole yes. uh, another well, issue. So, so you hear this, pers- you hear a lot of people saying, well, I'm very interested in the expansion of consciousness, mm-hmm. which usually is premised on some a false premise which is that their consciousness that that their that their consciousness is going to expand that they will get enlightened the i will get enlightened i had the privilege of being at one of deepak chopra's big gatherings and i gave a closing talk at it it was funny it was a a very wealthy person that i was trying to get uh, some funding for nuclear disarmament that told me that i needed to have more i needed more spirituality bring more heart to the affair <laughs> and because uh, uh, he didn't have any idea that i that he did anyway so he flew me to deepak's conference in in uh, puerto rico and so i was privileged to give deepak saw me and said oh wow i'm so glad you're here do the closing the closing <laughs> session i i was pondering like what would be a value to share? And I realized that these people that were there were incredibly pure and good people striving for more purity and goodness. The key element that I thought was missing was this misperception that you could expand consciousness. And I thought what would be the most important, what, what is it that those people who have fully realized the infinity of their own consciousness with the divine consciousness with the creator what do they say and they all emphasize across cultures the same principle expand conscience Mm -hmm. and they describe it as do not unto others as you would not have them do unto you or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Some iteration of treating other lives as your own life. And now in order to do that skillfully, you have to know the needs and wants and desires and uh, suffering of others. So you need compassion. In order to have the energy to do that, you need love. So you need love and compassion to fulfill that ethical admonition. But it's not just love and compassion for your own story in your own drama but for others and that it seems to me that whether it's the buddha or jesus or muhammad they all every one of them seneca can socrates whether they're secular or 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 whatever whatever religious tradition you find an iteration of the golden rule which is which is really about expanding conscience to respond to others needs as the secret sauce Mm. 
And I, I was pondering, what's the technology of how does this work? And I, I thought, I've been, I'm still thinking about it. I'm still trying to learn from this, which is that consciousness follows the borders of your heart. The extent of the boundary of your heart, it will always be the extent of the boundary of your consciousness. So if your heart becomes a heart without borders and you feel the suffering of others as your own and you care for them, then you become like my teacher who saw all lives as part of his own life and treated everybody as not above or below, not as equal, but as part of him. And then consciousness follows. Otherwise, new age consciousness pursuits can devolve into charity or just charity. Charity's good, but it's not going to get you enlightened. Charity's really good. You know, charity's good. Um, pity is better than indifference, but compassion isn't pity. A nice candle and a, a nice warm bath and a good massage. Not bad things, but not going to get you enlightened. What does get enlightened, what will get us enlightened, is treating other lives as part of our own life. R bringing the golden rule into practice. Yeah. And uh, to me, that is the difference between trying to expand one's consciousness and the path, the path of the Dharma, the path of, uh, the path of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, I, I, I was hungry. Did you feed me? I was naked. Did you clothe me? I was... In jail, did you visit me? And then, then the, the disciples say, "What, Master, we never saw you like that. And then he said, what you do to the least amongst you, you do to me. Mm -hmm. And that, that our conscience should be asking four questions today. What am I doing to end poverty? Because poverty its the first time in human history that we have the technical and uh, social organization capacity to end it. To what am I doing to get rid of nuclear weapons, which is the paradigm of destruction? What am I doing to protect the climate and the living systems that civilization depends upon? And then what am I doing to find the purest, deepest, most virtuous love within myself today and bringing it into action? Yeah. And, you know, these, if these questions are asked of ourselves and others, they're, they're powerful and it could change everything. And they all come back to the golden rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are good things to have in front of us up on the wall and to remind ourselves every morning, I think, that, to really deepen and open ourselves to what you call hearts without borders. I love that, that term because it really, it really captures the movement. Just to back up a little bit, one of the other issues around this enlightenment consciousness awakening issue is that we hold it as a destination rather than an ongoing opening. Oh, start, yeah. That's you know? a, yeah, yeah. That's a real ego perspective, yeah. you know. Uh, I, when, uh, you know, I was a young man. I was 23. I wanted to get enlightened. I'd heard about this. I had experience, some spiritual experiences. So I was with my, I was with this little old man, Bawa, and, uh, and he was enlightened. And uh, the evidence of that was that he loved everyone as himself. Mm -hmm. And he was just joyous beyond anyone I'd ever met. And, uh, and, he, and he, he knew the, the intimate details of everyone's life. 
it, it, down, down to your zip code. Mm -hmm. There was no boundary of consciousness. Something that's very rare. Yeah. So I fasted for three days. I only drank distilled water. I went to, uh, I took a sauna to purify myself. I dressed all in white, came and sat in a full lotus in front of him with my hands like this, ready. Came in the late afternoon. Nobody was in it. There was just two or three people around him taking care of him. This old man, luminous eyes. The master. I sat in full lotus, ready to be the transmission of the of enlightenment right again this is all true mm -hmm. a few days earlier a young a young person about a five six year old had given him a gift that was valuable to the young man it was a little green water pistol mm -hmm. <laughs> oh no i can see it coming <laughs> and as i sat there he reached behind his back didn't say a word and emptied the water pistol on me <laughs> Oh, lovely. And the vanity, the vanity, the arrogance of it hit me. Oh, my God. I, the very problem that is between me and God, my egocentricity, my vanity, my narcissism, my self-preoccupation with my own drama, my self-love, that's the barrier between us and real love, which is to care for others as oneself. Mm -hmm. And in that realizing the dignity of our own, our own divine capacity. And, 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 and I was viewing enlightenment like a possession that yeah. I would get it. And you don't get it. You don't get enlightened. It's exactly the opposite. You get rid of the, the drama, mm -hmm. the arrogance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I will always be, ignorant god alone is great mm -hmm. or uh the buddha would would describe it as when one penetrates the illusion of separation or shunyata uh, then the plenitude and fullness of being is realized granoff <laughs> talk about the path of service you know i think it was albert schweitzer said i don't know who among you will be happy but I know it will be those of you who have sought and found how to serve. And very much in the Persian poets, again and again and again, you see this path of service. What, what does that mean to you? And how do you recommend people who say, well, I want to do good, but I've got a mortgage to pay and I've got to do this. And as soon as I retire, I'll start contributing. What are your thoughts about that? Put your love of God first. As Hafiz says, both the happiness and the sorrows of the world will pass away. So it is better to remain peaceful throughout. <laughs> <laughs> How can you travel the path of truth? Unless you step out of the boundary of your own nature, you must leave the abode of your nature, temperament, and thoughts. Unless you do so, you cannot reach the lane of truth. Mm -hmm. So there has to be uh, an understanding that there's a part of you that is transcendent and sacred. Mm -hmm. Yeah, stepping out of your own nature. Stepping out of your own nature. Let's, let's expand on that a little bit. People could 
hear that in many ways. I uh, well, he meant he meant your physical needs. He, oh, okay. I was thinking of our story, our narrative. Stepping. But doesn't that always doesn't our narrative always come back in some way to satisfying some emotional, which is physical, emotional or physical need? Well, the fear that not that you won't be able to have right. enough to eat. I mean, you have an entire uh, entire nation of China, which is based on the trauma of famine and 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 existential turmoil so the the whole focus of their social order is ensuring a bowl of rice so the belief in accountability to the transcendent i think is extremely important and the transcendent in our vocabulary is supernatural it's beyond the natural it creates the natural mm-hmm. and I, th- I think where you're going is we live in a time in which the perception of the natural as being somehow inferior to the transcendent has created tremendous problems. Mm-hmm. And that creates tremendous problems of people fighting within themselves between their uh, physical desires and the desire for spiritual purity and not having, uh, not having an understanding of how to approach that issue, not ha- not understanding that you do have a stomach. It's one span. It's only this big or so, you know, <laughs> but, and, but, and there is a huge difference between your level of happiness of having no meal, no bed, no shelter, no potable water and having potable water, one bed and sufficient nourishment for your body. Big difference, but not a big difference between your happiness of having one bed and five beds, between having extra food in the refrigerator and having enough, between between having clean water and abundance or just clean water to take care of you. Your happiness is now dependent on the spiritual aspect of ourselves. And uh, our society has become totally preoccupied with only the limited part of ourselves, with our, our decorating our bodies, decorating our egos, having excessive property, etc. And then viewing the natural world as uh, as as an aspect of consumerism, rather than as something extremely beautiful, sacred, and a story to learn from. So we're destroying species at a thousand times the evolutionary base rate. Um, we have an economic system that is not in harmony with the nature of the natural. 300 years ago, there wasn't any garbage. Our bodies are part of the phytoplankton, which produces 50 to 70% of our oxygen, which depends on the health of the oceans. We're not separate from that at all. We're not, we're not separate from, from the oceans. So. We need to recognize what it is in our nature. What is our nature? But you will not, but you don't find, you can't eat your way to human evolution. You, yeah. know, you, can't, you can't, and no matter how much you give away in service and charity, that's not going to give you wisdom. It's good to do those things, but those are not for the inner awakening. The inner awakening is a turning of the heart. And is is it, it has to be free of 
the pride of success and the shame of failure. Mm-hmm. And that's where the wisdom teaching comes in, in, in answer to your question. Mm-hmm. So the key is, if you're, whatever you're doing, and you don't have to be an activist. I, I've, cho- I've chosen a path of activism. But if you're going to be a good parent, you've got to have love without, without a sense of ownership and control. You've got, to, you've, got to be that, you've got to be that example. That's what your children are going to learn, is the way you are. That's how you teach them. If you're going to be a teacher in a school, you can give your all to your students. If you're going to be a carpenter, you want to make things that are beautiful and work. If you're going to be an architect or a lawyer, in anything you're doing, you can do it with the spirit of service, with the spirit of excellence, with the service of, with the, with integrity. And if you can't do it with those things, then do something else. Yeah. But there's, but let, you know, you can be a nurse, a doctor. Uh, I, 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 I'll never forget being in Hiroshima where there's a service culture. That's one of the reasons why they've been able to revive after the terrible thing that, of the destruction of the city, going to catch a train at 6.30 in the morning when the street cleaners were out. And this is a culture of service in, 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 in there. And, they, and when I walked by, they stopped and bowed to me. Mm-hmm. knowing or expecting correctly that I would stop and bow to them. Mm-hmm. And they were proud that they were making sure that their city was clean and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, I, when I turned away, I had tears in my eyes. It was really a gesture wow. of real spirituality for me that they were doing their work of street cleaners with dignity and pride my god i you know i've never seen that in america it just blew me away and uh uh, and you see that as you travel the world that you know you see people in many parts of the world with so less than we have in the so-called developed world and so much more dignity Hmm. jonathan i want to ask you a question that we probably need another hour to answer but i'm going to ask it anyway as we get close to the end and that is I'm wondering what Hafiz would say about what's happening on the planet right now with the rise of, of oligarchs and fascist kind of domination, the complete domination of the fossil fuel industry, these things that are happening and the suffering and the uprisings that are happening. I wonder what Hafiz would say about this and what you would say. My political mentor was Senator Alan Cranston. And he used to say, when you look at the situation of the world, you you have two choices, terror or humor. Hafiz, when you read his things in this wonderful book, he is way on the side of humor, laughing at the human condition, laughing at the pretentiousness of rulers and religious leaders, laughing at all human vanity. And putting as the primary duty of our lives to gain that transcendent state that Krishna demands of Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. If you look at the example of his life, maintaining his integrity and speaking truth to power. His poems are speaking truth to power. Yeah. There's no question when he says, say yes to that calling from God, that he's talking about caring about the poor, caring about... You see, we're in a time that's different than his time because, I mean, it was a 
time in which you had destruction of cities with Mongol invasions, tremendous, you know, tremendous uh, uh, violence was, you know, present in their lives. But they didn't have the technical ability to destroy the ecosystem of the planet for life. They didn't have that ability. So that wasn't an issue. But that's, that's the challenge of our time. I'm in an initiative called the Peace Pledge Project, in which uh, there's a peace pledge, and I urge people to go look at it, uh, the Peace Pledge to Live Loving Kindness and Compassion, in which we challenge the world's religions to put loving kindness and compassion ahead of rights, rituals, practices, and any, any differences. So we've had these pilgrimages to sacred places, and in honor of the indigenous understanding of the sacred, in which the natural world is considered part of the sacred, we went to Greenland last summer, the summer before last, because there was an Eskimo shaman elder who in, invited us. So, And I observed myself the melting of the polar ice cap. Now I saw where it had been like three miles high and it was now like 100 yards. I saw billions of gallons of fresh water that had been captured in ice for millions and millions of years melting into the oceans. The scale of it is uh, you can't imagine. I saw fields of beautiful stones. Actually, I picked up a bunch of them, put them in my pocket. And then as we were going back to the base camp, I stopped, stopped, stopped the truck. And I went back. I had to put them back. I felt I'd, mm-hmm. they'd been under the ice cap for maybe, you know, 10, 20 million, maybe a billion years. I mean, from the beginning. And um, I, I had to put them back. I felt I'd violated something. Mm-hmm. And it was, 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 it was, there was no, we had no electricity, no running water. It was, 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 it was very challenging. We then went to Assisi, to the shrine of St. Francis. And we had shamans, imams, rabbis, and swamis, and Tibetan Rinpoches, and big interfaith gathering. I mean, very, very elevated people. Really amazing. And our message was, with technology and greed, we're melting the polar ice cap. When will we learn the wisdom of St. Francis and melt the human heart? That is the most important thing we have to do, that each of us has to do. Then I think there are, then, 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 you, then I think we can make it an intention to be of service with certain ethical, so good conscience isn't enough. You need ethical principles. So ethical principles would be look to the least amongst us. That's what Jesus said, right? That's what my teacher did. He lived, he lived in Sri Lanka with the poorest of the poor. That's where you find these guys. He he lit and, and but but he treated the prime minister and the wealthiest with the same love and compassion. He didn't begrudge their to him it would be just trinkets with the same love and compassion as the poorest of the poor. He treated everyone as 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 just acting in the world. I was trained as an attorney, so I use those skills to be an advocate for what I think, from my perception, is the issue that I think is central to our survival, which is the elimination of nuclear weapons. Yeah. Uh, I don't believe that we can protect the climate without changing the paradigm of how states pursue security. A 1.7 trillion a year uh, on means of destroying ourselves. Right. Uh, and the readiness as we speak to release thousands of nuclear warheads and end the human venture and all the future is 
immoral, illegal, insane, and prevents the level of cooperation that I think is needed to protect the oceans and the climate. Mm, well said. On the other hand, on the other hand, working to protect the climate and seeing the fact that we do have to cooperate should bring the environmentalists to say, we need to get rid of nuclear weapons so that we can cooperate to solve it. And we are natural, these movements and the movement for human rights are natural allies. And at this point, as we're speaking right today, in uh, December of 2019, these movements are siloed. Mm-hmm. And we are, and as, and the spiritual awakening movement is siloed. And I think that we have commonalities of interest that should compel us to be working much more closely together, both as a strategic utilitarian imperative, but also because it's true. Yeah. So important what you're saying. We're, we have to wrap it up now. I, I just want to say one more time, you know, the thing that the Illuminated Happy's um, book really brought to me, and this would be a wonderful gift if you wanted to give someone that's so beautifully illustrated. The thing that really came to me was how important it is now in this time to live a contemplative life no matter how much, to at least engage ourselves in contemplative practices, to really embrace the truths that are all around us, and to let go a little bit of our hold on our own personal story and really focus on our connection with everything and everyone, including the natural world especially. We need beauty. Yeah. And... um... I was hiking with my sons in the Trinity Alps. Three, with, I have three beautiful sons and I was hiking with two of them. And I realized that if I was upset and angry, I would not have seen the incredible beauty of those mountains. Mm-hmm. And then it hit me that the extent of the beauty that I could see in the lesson of, of the natural world was bounded by the extent of beauty that I had within myself. Yeah. And it caused me to want to be purer and better within myself. And I thought, ah, I, you know, I'm in my seventies. And I said, Oh, finally, I get it. I get it. This beautiful gift of the planet earth is a story designed to cause us to awaken our hearts and souls more fully and serve to protect it and protect one another. And that if we find that beauty within ourselves, then we can see and experience more beauty in one another and the world. And the wise, the wise men and women like Hafiz, their work is to help us awaken that beauty within ourselves. Yeah. And uh, that, that's why it's a great book. And, but, but more importantly, that that's, that's the people that are, you know, would be watching your show would, you know, these are people who resonate uh, to this. And you shouldn't look to see whether, well, why doesn't everybody get it? No, no, no. Be really grateful that you get it. Uh, yeah. I've been given this. Uh, Jonathan Granoff, I am so honored to have you on. And I'm so happy that there's people like you in the world that have 
dedicated their lives to these issues that are so important, the climate change, the nuclear disarmament, and, and bringing love into the world and, and unity into the world. It's, um, you know, one of our sayings here at the Well of Light is finding unity in diversity. And you've certainly done that in your life. And it's just an honor to have you with us here on Conversations. I would, you know, it's a, I mean, to have the privilege of sharing what's the most dear and precious part of my life with others, it is really a privilege. Uh, and I thank you. And, you know, uh, there's a metaphor in the Hafez that he uses often, which is being in the broken tavern, you know, being in the tavern, yes. uh, which, you know, in the culture that he's in, taverns were like on the outskirts of town, outside of sort of like in no man's land. It was a discarded place. And his point was that, that it's, it's, the, it's the marginal people that count as much as the heads of state, as much as the famous people. And that what makes the moment beautiful is what we focus on. Yes. And your show focuses on the highest. <laughs> and thank you very much. Blessings, my friend. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.